Our happy chemicals are not designed to be on all the time. They're designed to turn on in small moments. So once you accept that they're not on all, but that they're not meant to be on all the time and nothing is wrong with you. So I don't think that disease model has been very valuable. Are you struggling with bloating, gas, constipation, and fatigue, but don't know what's causing these problems? The Gut Health Reset Podcast with Dr. Anne-Marie Barter dives deep into the root causes behind these issues that start in the gut. This podcast will give you the knowledge you need to heal your gut and reset your health. Today on the Gut Health Reset Podcast, we are talking about neurochemicals and how they relate to your sense of well-being. We're also talking about how to get more serotonin and less cortisol and how diet relates to your sense of overall well-being. Thank you so much for joining us here today on the Gut Health Reset Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Anne-Marie Barter, and today our special guest is Loretta Bruning, PhD. She is the founder of the Inner Mammalial Institute and Professor Amaretta of Management at California State University, East Bay. She is the author of many personal development books, including Habits of a Happy Brain, Retrain Your Brain to Boost Serotonin, Dopamine, Oxytocin, and Endorphin Levels. Her books have been translated into eight languages and cited into major media. All of her inner mammalian Institute offers videos, podcast books, multimedia and training programs can be found on innermammalianinstitute.org. Loretta, it is so great to have you back on the show. It was so fun the first time around and we talked about all the neurochemicals and I'm so passionate about them too. And I love them. So, um, I just find your work so interesting and, and so fascinating. So it's great to have you back on the show. Thanks so much. All right. So I want to kind of dig in, you know, you're releasing, uh, basically a new book, correct? Yes. Awesome. Yes. It's awesome. called status games, why we play and how to stop. I like that. I like that a lot. So maybe we should get into why we play uh, status games. <laughs> sure. Yes, exactly. Okay. So, um, let's hear it. Um, no one consciously intends to do this. Uh, we all easily see this in others, and we don't really like to see it in ourselves, but it's very valuable to understand the universal mammalian impulse. So when you see yourself in the one-up position, your brain actually rewards you with serotonin. That's a good feeling. So that motivates you. You want more of that good feeling. So you try to put yourself in the one-up position again. Now, it sounds cruel or nasty or whatever, but in the animal world, if you put yourself in the one-up position and then you can possibly assert yourself for food and mating opportunity. But when you see that you're in the one-down position, then you will get bitten if you reach for food or mating opportunity. So animals do not reach out for resources unless they compare themselves to others and make sure it's safe. So we have inherited a brain that is constantly comparing us, constantly comparing us to others. And we want to be in the one-up position because that feels good. But even more, we want to avoid being the one-down position because then we might get bitten. So you can see how this is like the craziness that people create in their own heads and then they play out in the world. 
And so how does this look? I mean, I'm assuming this looks like keeping up with the Joneses, winning the race, et cetera. This is why we strive and are almost what, what would you call overachievers? Our mind never stops. We always have to keep pushing. Correct. Um, Oh, there's a lot of different things there. That whole pushing treadmill feeling, that is actually dopamine. Um, But all the chemicals, you only get them for a short time and then you need more. So even with connection, that feeling is quickly metabolized and then you want more, which is why people can be like clingy or following the herd. So all of these chemicals keep motivating us. That's the job they do. But the motivation to be in the one-up position that plays out in so many different ways and accusing others of like being materialistic or um, people who want to get ahead. That's like the obvious example, but there are just hundreds of examples. So my book starts with actually just a couple of dozen of them. And for example, um, you know, if someone cuts you off driving and it's really irrelevant. So why do people get so upset about that? because they're connecting it to something in their past, because all of these one up, one down games are wired in when we're young, because that's when our neuroplasticity is high. So anytime you feel like someone's getting ahead of you, you have that reaction. And another famous example is moral superiority. I'm better than you because my diet is healthier than yours, or I can do more sit-ups than you or whatever. So it happens in so many ways. All the time, right? Everywhere. It seems like, wow. 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 Yeah. <laughs> I'm almost speechless when yeah. I'm almost speechless. Okay. So let's get, let's get into like really digging into it. So what is the connection between our peace of mind and these neurochemicals? Great. So, um, We feel good when we have these chemicals. So we think, oh, I need that. When the chemical is quickly metabolized and then it's gone. Now, any worries, anxieties, fears that you have are sort of masked by a good feeling chemical. So then when the good feeling is gone, you risk going back to that bad feeling and then you may rush, oh, I gotta feel good again. I gotta quickly repeat whatever it is, whatever, like, oh, I can do more sit-ups than them or whatever it is that you're using to stimulate your happy chemicals. And so I use the concept of being in neutral, like a car could either be in forward or in reverse or in neutral. So many people feel like they have to be in forward all the time because otherwise they'll be in reverse and reverse means stress chemicals, threat, risk, fear. But we can actually train ourselves to understand that we could be in neutral, which means a happy chemical surge is over. And instead of now thinking that you're going to go back to a threatened feeling, it means that you have an open mind and you're ready for your next step. Because that's what our brain is really designed for is deciding where should I invest my energy in my next step? And how many people are really in neutral? Do you have to train yourself to be in neutral? I think so. Yeah. Because, but see, the thing is, we already trained ourselves to fear like not being in forward all the time, right? And the simple example is to think about 
a teenager being bored. Because what is being bored is the minute there's not some excitement going on or some distraction that a bad thought returns to your head, a sense of fear or loss of whatever minutia is going on. And so the way you end the bad feeling is by rushing into the next excitement, whatever that may be. It could be a video game. It could be food. It could be having a pleasant conversation. It could be yelling at someone. So just the idea of doing nothing and doesn't mean that you have to rush into your next reward, but you can slowly enjoy your choice about your next step toward reward. But we do need to take steps toward rewards to stimulate our happy chemicals. That's how they're designed to work. Mm-hmm. And so how does our past experience and what we've experienced previously, maybe in childhood, affect our well-being today? So here's the thing, all of these chemicals are wired by past experience. And the simple way to understand that is when you're born, you don't speak any language at all. But by the time you're two years old, you've learned a language from repetition. That's just what builds neural pathways. So in the same way that you learned words, you learned your likes and dislikes. And you didn't learn them from conscious language. That's the the language part of your brain is more conscious, but the nonverbal part of your brain learns from chemicals. So anything that made you feel good connected neurons to say that's the way to feel good. And anything that made you feel bad connected neurons that said that's going to be bad. So when you're under eight years old, these connections build very easily. And that's why we learn language easily at that age. We also learn our emotional responses easily at that age. Then when you're in your in puberty years, you get another surge of myelin, which is the chemical that's like paving on your neural pathways. And that likewise gives you a new opportunity to build new highways for anything that made you feel good or bad during those years. Wow. And rinse, repeat, right? So can you give, (laughs) yeah. Can you give an example of what that's going to look like to a child and what, what kind of fundamental pathways we build? Sure. So um, children want attention and to be special. That's the one up feeling. And you can easily see this in monkeys. Little monkeys are constantly wrestling with each other. And we say, oh, it's cute. They're just playing. But they're not just playing. They're trying to learn how to get the dominant position. Now, a little kid learns whatever stimulates a good feeling, they want to repeat that. So whether it's the good dopamine feeling or oxytocin feeling, which we could go into or not, um, but the good serotonin feeling is whatever makes you special. Now, one child might be special by kicking a goal in a little kiddie soccer team. Another kid might be special because they live in a home with three adults and no other children and every single thing they do, they get a constant round of applause. Another kid might be special by stealing another person's cookie and becoming the center of attention that way. So whatever works when you're young, alas, builds pathways that tell your brain to expect another good feeling when you repeat that behavior. So if people really think about 
the things they focus on today, you can see the early roots of that. Mm-hmm. And let's talk about like, you did go into the neurochemicals a little bit. So what would be, you know, a dopamine, you know, reward, what would be a serotonin reward? So let's kind of go through some of that as well. Sure. So, and let me start with like a seven-year-old kid since we mm-hmm. were on that. Right. So, uh, yeah. So um, when you're born, you are hungry but you can't do anything to get your own food. You don't even know what food is. But the first time you're fed, the food relieves the feeling of hunger. So hunger is an alarmed feeling, is cortisol, which we call the stress chemical. So anything that relieves a bad feeling, your brain says, wow, get me more of that. So that's dopamine, that your need has been met. And that's really what does it. So if you are hungry and you hear your mother's footsteps and you link that to in the past your when you heard that sound your need was met your bad feeling was relieved so even before you know what your mother is you release dopamine when you hear your mother's footsteps now you could imagine a kid like um they're bored and one kid learns to relieve boredom with this diversion. Another kid learns with that diversion. So anything that, um, so diversion is not a conscious need, um, not a survival need, but when your main needs are met, dopamine is about finding something new. And so that's why, you know, when kids find something new, they get a spurt of dopamine and whatever kind of exploring and excitement they learned when they were young, that's where they look to in the future. And you can see again, how we do that in our own ways. Now, oxytocin is the urge for social support. So like I said, a newborn baby, when it's hungry, it doesn't consciously understand social support, but by the time you're one or two, then you sort of get it that if you lose your mommy in a store, that you're sort of in trouble, right? So it's that desire for protection. And once again, anytime you get protection, the good feeling of oxytocin is released. It built, it connects neurons. It's like, oh, that's the way to feel good. That's the way to get social support. So again, one person might do it by tap dancing and finger painting and mommy, look what I did, you know, and another person might do it by studying and getting we're uh, getting attention in the classroom. Uh, and again, all of these things, then we build another layer of circuitry in our puberty years. And all of this time, we're also learning how to do this through mirror neurons, which means how do the people around us do it? When the people around you get that great feeling of, yes, this, this works for me, or no, this is terrible for me. So we sort of drink that in too. Mm. It's neat. So you, you did talk about cortisol. So how does stress and how is stress related to self-confidence or self-esteem? Good, good, good. So these are all words that we put on it with our conscious brain. Mm -hmm. So we know that we should have self-esteem or whatever word you want to use, self-love, (coughs) self-compassion, excuse me. Um, but 
your nonverbal brain, we know it's it's hard to do because your nonverbal brain is already wired to do it in its own way. So each little child has learned, let's talk about it in child language, like, uh-oh, I'm going to get in trouble or wow, they'll really love this, you know? So whatever we learned in our past about what works and what makes you feel accepted and respected. So accepted is the oxytocin of support and respected is the serotonin of being important. So you're um, learning in more of a, a naive childlike way to seek those feelings. And then we all have the challenge of trying to translate that into an adult response because you learn when you're, when, as you grow up, that those child responses can get you into trouble. So we're always trying to um, sort of figure that out. A, a simple example would be a person in high school who um, has risky behavior. And when they engage in risky behavior, they're popular and they're the center of attention. It's like, whoa, I want more of that. <laughs> um, and then they make it add consequences from that over time. So we're trying to fit our bad consequences with our old pathways of this is the way to go. And that's why it's hard to find that self-esteem place because our early wiring can never be perfect because we don't know what the adult world is like. Mm. Interesting. And, and how does that look um, today? Because we have, I feel like a lot of people today are addicted to stress, almost addicted to that stress feeling, uh, you know, and you ask somebody how they are and it's become an emotion. Like I'm stressed. Uh, you know, and, and it, de there's no really expounding on that. And it's like, okay, you know, I'm overwhelmed. So where does that piece come from? And how does that link into our, does that just give us something worthwhile that, Hey, we're busy. We want to be seen as busy. Don't bother me. I, I, I'm not fully, I've never fully understood. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I totally agree with everything you said. Um, and I, I like that evidence of how busy you are. Um, so it's a learned thing and we can think of it as uh, an effort to connect. So every culture, every generation has its acceptable ways to connect. And I think that has been learned as the acceptable way to connect. And every way has its pros and cons. For example, you know, there have been times in the past where people say, how are you? And you say, I'm great, even if you're awful. So that has its limits too, right? Then there are times when um, people connected just by talking about the weather. So now people connect by saying, I'm stressed. So ironically, just by coincidence, I was writing about this this morning, that there was that movie called Inside Out, which is a cartoon version by Pixar of what's going on in your head. It was a very popular movie, but I had written a blog post criticizing it because in the movie, the girl gets love by having a meltdown. And it, the movie was really teaching kids that the way to get love is by having a meltdown. And the mother in the movie is like, 
so much praising the kid for having the meltdown because you're in touch with your feelings. So how do you become special and one up and important by being the weak, vulnerable person that everybody now has to take care of? So many people struggle with bloating, bowel issues, brain fog, fatigue. You might not even have any gut issues, but did you know the cause of it could be food sensitivities or gut infections? What I have done is I have brought a talented functional nutritionist into my practice. We have very similar training in the nutritional world. And her name is Alexis Appleberry. She is awesome. So you can head on over to our website, Alt ALT, FAM, FAM, Med, MED, and have a consultation with her and schedule so that she can help you get to the root cause of your problems. Um, so how do we rewire ourselves to feel more of these neurochemicals, for example? And I mean, I think that people really genuinely want to connect. They want to feel less stressed. And I mean, and we can even go into, you know, I was, I was having a conversation the other day with, um, a pediatric doctor and, um, she's been in practice for about 15 years. And she said, I have written more antidepressant prescriptions in the, in, in 2020 and 2021 than I have in my entire career. So I think that that like talks about the monumental mm-hmm. piece that I think people were really struggling with kind of through this time. And so how do we enjoy more serotonin on our own versus getting it from a prescription and less stress? Yeah. Well, and by the way, the less stress piece, I wrote a different book about that. That's called tame your anxiety. So, um, is such a big question. And so let's start with going back to this idea that our happy chemicals are not designed to be on all the time. They're designed to turn on in small moments in a situation where an animal would need that, like that on switch to say, this is the time to go for it. And it's like turning on the gas from your um, inner mammal's perspective. And If it were on every minute, then you turn on the gas at the wrong moment. So once you accept that they're not on all, that they're not meant to be on all the time and nothing is wrong with you, then because people have learned to define themselves through the disease model, which suggests that other people are getting these good feelings effortlessly all the time. And if you're not getting them, something must be wrong with you and you can get your brain fixed at the shop, the way you bring your car to the shop and get it fixed. People have learned not to take responsibility for their brain, that it's not a matter of skill building, but it's a matter of uh, I'm broken and I need to be fixed. I have a disorder. So I don't think that disease model has been very valuable. So the first skill is to know that I don't need to have a happy chemical on every minute, because if I do, I may rush into harmful behaviors that turn on my happy chemicals instantly that may not be good for me. So then I have that uncomfortable moment when I realize that my happy chemicals have fallen, but I'm not gonna rush into that old pattern. And so I have this fear that a bad feeling is gonna come on. And I was as bad as anybody with this. Like I had 
unpleasant old memories. So I needed to do cartwheels every minute to distract myself out of fear that those unhappy feelings would come back. So that's a learned habit, that fear of your old unpleasant memories. But everybody has it. It's a natural thing. So animals live in a world of threat and they're constantly either running from threat or seeking reward. Animals need to eat almost all day in order to get enough food. So they're so busy seeking food and chewing and digesting and looking for mates, uh, nurturing the constant offspring, that they don't have time to worry about predators. So that's what we suddenly have all its free time to worry. And that's what people are doing. And then they're rushing into that flight from worry. And so the self-acceptance that that worry feeling is something I created with old neural pathways. It's just a chemical that will be metabolized in an hour. And I can find healthy distractions within that hour. And then after that, I can make healthy decisions about the next step to turn on more happy chemicals. Mm -hmm. So I think most people just can't even get out of the worry. It's, it, it's, it's perpetual. And I, I think that I see that a fair amount and people can't turn their brain off. They can't stop intrusive thoughts. They can't stop the worry. It's kind of one thing to the next. So you said you distracted yourself um, you know, from uncomfortable thoughts. It, is that the best tool or one of the only tools to use to stop maybe that constant worry that, that some people feel? The first step is really to be honest with yourself about what the uncomfortable thought is and then look for the root of it in your childhood so that you can accept that it's just an old neural pathway rather than a current emergency. And in my book, Tame Your Anxiety, I suggest putting on a timer and doing this for 60 seconds, because then if it's a real emergency, people say, well, what if it's a real emergency? So if it's a real emergency, then you can take action. But 60 seconds is long enough to look for that old pattern and say, oh, this is my fear. Let's call it fear of rejection, right? Fear of abandonment and fear of being criticized. All of these things, fear of, of social isolation. These are all fears that we build in our childhood because that's normal for a child. And if you're always running from these fears, rather than looking at them with your adult brain, then you can't rewire them. Once you look at them with your adult brain, then you can think about it in adult, in adult terms. Like, yes, I have been rejected, but is it really a survival threat? That's one possible response. Another possible response is, was I really rejected? Maybe it's just that I expected too much from that person. And what I got was X and I was really hoping for Y, but that's not really a rejection. Or another possibility is, Maybe I really rejected them by running away because I'm so fearful of rejection. So whatever person's pattern is, they can dig in and find that. And then, okay, then you're so full of 
anxiety, cortisol, when you think about that old moment that first created your fear, then you could give yourself like a half hour to watch a comedy and then take action. Go forward and create a new pathway that says, in the long run, the next time I feel rejection, this is the way I want to manage it. Or the next time I feel isolated or the next time I feel clueless, whatever your loop is, that you say, the way I want to manage it is this and know that you can make this your new normal, but it takes a lot of repetition to do that. So you have to commit to the repetition. Mm -hmm. Do you also think that, that the piece of this is maybe you said to watch a comedy. I thought, I thought that was very specific Um, because that's (laughs) going to create happy feelings. Do you feel like a lot of the TV that people watch actually is a problem here? Um, yeah, it depends how you use it. So if you use it um, endlessly, or if you use it as a referencing uh, for your reality. <laughs> so I am very careful. I always explain about how much time I spend choosing my distractions, and then how careful I am about the end time that I'm only going to do it for this amount of time. Because once you have cortisol in your bloodstream, it takes a half hour to an hour to get rid of a good chunk of it. And during that time, your brain is only looking for bad things because that's the job of cortisol is to tell you to look for danger. And if you don't consciously manage it by some kind of positive, healthy thing, then you'll probably stuff food in your face or some other thing. Mm-hmm. And so that's, so if you're watching like a very heavy murder show, very he- painful, you know, um, you know, I don't know, it was the behavioral unit or something that was very dark. I don't even, I think, exactly. I, I think, you know what I'm talking about, but exactly. so, so that's going to increase the cortisol, which is maybe going to, Oh Yeah to really drive in that feeling that you're trying to get rid of, correct? Yeah, yeah. And it's sort of like, why do people choose to do that? And I think people look for something that helps them explain why they have these dark feelings. And there's an old cliche that misery loves company. Mm-hmm. And this is really true in the animal world that mammals bond around common threats. So mm-hmm. if you have, let's say a group of baboons, If there's no threat, they spread out because it's easier to find food that way. But as soon as they smell a predator, they cluster. And so we like that clustering. We fear that isolation. And we learn from past experience that whatever activates this sense of threat makes it easier for us to generate a feeling of belonging. But we often then accentuate that sense of threat in very unhealthy ways. And politics, needless to say, is a a well-known example of this. Mm -hmm. For sure. So it sounds like when we feel, you know, to rewire ourselves to feel better, watching something lighthearted for a short period of time, um, really feeling for 60 seconds what we're feeling and why, and really where does that date back to eight years or younger, like what were we feeling during that time period? Is there anything else that is kind of like a stop, drop and roll that needs to be done when we're getting these, these cortisol type stress feelings? 
So the two steps you mentioned are great. And then the third step after your, let's say, half hour of something uplifting. And what I always explain is it has to be uplifting to you. So if you want to play the guitar, if that feels good to you, great. If, if you get frustrated when you play the guitar, then it's not great. You want to do yoga if you like it, great. But if yoga makes you frustrated, that's so everyone has to decide that. And then the third step, again, is to focus on your next step and your next step toward positive expectations, toward a reward. And once again, I say, put on a timer, 60 seconds is long enough to analyze your next step, because if you have infinite amount of time, you'll just analyze it and never take it. So give yourself 60 seconds to analyze and then take that next step. Decide what do I need to invest my energy in next? And a simple example is like, if you're a gazelle, you're always making a decision. Do I want to walk toward that greener pasture to get more food? Or do I want to walk toward the herd to get more safety? Or do I want to run to escape danger? So they're always deciding, like, what's my next step? And that's what you are always deciding. Mm-hmm. And so would that be another distraction? Would that be, because you said positive expectations, which I think is an interesting way to phrase it. Um, I was thinking you were going to say realistic expectations. Okay. okay. <laughs> yes. So um, after you're done with the distraction, then you need to take a positive step and a step that it goes together. Thank you. Realistic and positive, because if you have positive expectations, I always use the example of being some kind of superstar and they're not realistic, then after a while, you it feels hopeless and you no longer have positive expectations. So you have to take a step toward something where you actually expect to get it. And the it being either a dopamine type of reward or a serotonin type of reward or an oxytocin and a small enough chunk that you actually expect to get there. Okay. Maybe not in one day, but with certain steps that you repeat. So you're saying maybe smaller steps that are attainable, that are going to give you the good feel good neurochemical dumps. Cause I, it's so funny. Cause I will be reading books and they're like, you got a dream so big over the top things you never thought. And I was like, wow, this book is very overwhelming. You know, I maybe more of a little raw, raw, um, too raw, raw for me, but, exactly. um, but yeah, that's interesting that you say that for me, the big wins come from small steps. Exactly. And what I say in all of my work is a a short run goal, a long run goal and a middle term goal. You can have all of those, Mm -hmm. Um, but we definitely need the short and the middle. And also when I say we need the the pleasurable distractors, because many people think when you're stressed that you should go eat vegetables and do exercise. (laughs) But in that moment when you're stressed, it doesn't uplift you. So then they have no uplifting tools. And what their inner mammal is giving that feeling of, hey, it's never my turn. I'm never going to be happy. I'm always going to be not eating healthy enough, not reaching high enough. It never feels like I got it. You're never giving it. It's like a, a horse and you're never giving it any carrots. You're always telling it the carrot will come later on. 
Mm-hmm. You know what I've noticed with kind of the, um, the serotonin cortisol picture is when somebody gets really stressed or they don't feel like they have enough cortisol, they, um, or I'm sorry, too much cortisol, not enough serotonin. They reach for cookie cakes and candy. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Cause that makes and- them feel good. Right. Exactly. Or whether, you know, it could be alcohol, drugs, or behaviors, unhealthy behaviors. Mm -hmm. And all of these come from setting the bar so high that you never feel a reward. Then you give up. Then you tell yourself, what's the use? Now I get to eat as many cookies as I want, or whatever other unhealthy habit that you're indulging in. And even when I say, um, if you never give yourself any rewards, Once you learn this healthy practice, you can start enjoying rewards again because you're able to just have a small amount. Awesome. Well, I think we can wrap up for today, but where can people find your book if they're interested? Um, InnerMammalInstitute.org has all of my books and lots of free resources. And if you don't like to read, has lots of things to listen to. So InnerMammalInstitute.org. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here today. And thank you for everybody for coming out and listening today. We really appreciate your support. If you want to hear more, let us know, subscribe, say hello, and let us know what you want to hear more of. Take care. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Gut Health Reset Podcast. Please make sure you subscribe, leave a rating and a review so more people can hear about the podcast. And hey, take a screenshot of this episode and tag Dr. Anne-Marie on Instagram or Facebook at Dr. Anne-Marie Barter. And for more resources, just visit DrAnneMarieBarter.com.